0: Chapter Sixteen of The Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. Chapter Sixteen. In this manner, the full and happy years began to glide past them. Their prosperity was now firmly established. The business grew, and money came in so nicely that Mrs. Dale's mortgage had been paid off and her two thousand pounds invested in gilded securities, while Dale hoped very shortly to discharge the remainder of his obligation to Mr. Bates. They were, however, as economical as ever in their own way of life, although they permitted themselves some license in the generosity they had begun to practice with regard to their less fortunate neighbors. But they found, as so many have found before them, that in personal charity a little money goes a long way, and that the claims of the very poor, although sometimes noisy, are rarely excessive. Naturally, they had to be careful for the sake of their children, the security of whose future must be the first consideration. Dale had promised the baby boy in his cradle the advantages of a liberal education, and he intended to act up to this promise largely. It is my wish, he said, that the two of them shall enjoy all that I was myself deprived of, New scraps were continually being pasted into the album, and it seemed to Mavis that she ought to have bought a bigger one, if indeed any albums were made of a size sufficiently big to contain all the evidences of her husband's gratified ambition. Scarce a courier was published without a bit in it that referred to Mr. Dale of Vine Farm. He was really becoming quite a public character. He had been called to the district council on its foundation as a personage who could not be left out. When the Otterford branch of the fire brigade was instituted all agreed in inviting Mr. Dale to be its captain, and four of the once sluggish yard-servants had immediately decided that they must follow their master wherever he led, and had enrolled themselves forthwith under his captaincy. He was a prominent figure at the old Manningley Corn Market, known by sight in its streets, and had recently been chosen as a member of its very select tradesmen's club this was an affair truly different from that vulgar boozing circle at the gauntlet inn which he had denounced so contemptuously in old days the manningley club was solid and respectable a pleasant meeting place where he could take his midday meal after market business in company with men of substance and repute he was on friendly terms with most of the farmers between the down country and rodhaven harbor and last but not least the gentry all past the time of day when they met him, and many would stop him on the high roads for a chat in the most polite and jolly fashion. He confessed to Mavis that the sweetest thing in his success was the feeling of being no longer disliked. Oh, Will, you never were disliked. But that's just what I was, and I begin to get a glimmer of the reason why. I was reading an article in Answers last week, and it seemed as if it had been written specially to enlighten me it was about sympathy the author who didn't sign his name but was evidently a man of powerful intellect said that without understanding you can't sympathize and he went on to show that without sympathy the whole world would come to a standstill ah said Mavis, that's the sort of difficult reading that you like it's too deep for me it's plain as the nose on one's face come to think of it sympathy is the keynote it enables you to look at things from both sides To put yourself in another man's place and ask yourself the question, what should I be thinking and doing if I was him? I should say, if I was he. In the old days I was very deficient in that. A fool just made me angry. Now I try to put myself in his place. He paused and smiled. Perhaps you'll say I'm there already, a fool myself. Oh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, and Mavis smiled too. Not quite a fool will. He went on analyzing his characteristic, talking with great interest in the subject and after a didactic style, but not with a heavy egoistic method that he had often employed years ago. "'No, I never remarked that.' "'You know,' he said presently, "'in spite of all my bounce, I was a shy man. It's the fact, Mae, and my shyness came between me and others. I couldn't take them sufficiently free. I wanted all the overtures to come from them.' and I was too ready to draw in my horns if they didn't seem to accept me straight at what I judged my own value. For a long while now it has been my endeavor to sink what was once described to me as my personal equation. I don't think of myself at all, if I can help it, and the consequence is the shyness gets pushed into the background, my manner becomes more free and open, and people begin to treat me in a more friendly spirit and he wound up his discourse by returning to the original cause of satisfaction yes i do think there are some now that like me for myself not many but just one or two besides dear old mr bates everybody does why look at that child nora only been here a month and worships the ground you tread on poor little mite that's her notion of being grateful for what i did for her father does she eat just the same ravenous Don't stint her, said Dale impressively. Feed her ad lib. Give her all she'll swallow. It's the leeway she's got to make up. And he turned his eyes toward the kitchen door. Is she out there? Yes. I spoke loud. You don't think she heard what I said? Oh, no, she's busy with Mrs. Goody. I wouldn't like for her to hear us discussing her vittles as though she was an animal. You might have thought she was verily an animal, said Mavis, if you'd seen her at the first meals we set before her and even now it brings a lump into my throat to watch her. Just so. When I told her to undress that night to wash herself, she was a sight to break one's heart. Her poor little ribs are almost sticking through the skin, and, well, I thought of one of ours ever being treated so." Dale got up from the table, his face glowing redly, his brows frowning, and he stretched his arms to their full length. By Jupiter, he said thickly, if only Mrs. Neath had been a man, "'I'd have given him—well, at the least, I'd have given him a piece of my mind. "'I'd have told him what I thought of him.' "'I promise you,' said Mavis, "'that I told Mrs. Neath what I thought of her. "'Ah, and I'm right glad you did.' This new inmate under the roof was Nora Veal, a twelve-year-old daughter of the Hadley Wood Hurdlemaker. Mavis, taking a present of tea and sugar to one of the crossroads cottages, had found her digging in the garden— and, struck by her pitiful aspect, had questioned her and elicited her history. It was a common enough one in those parts. Not being wanted at home, she had been lent to Mrs. Neath, the cottage woman, in exchange for her keep, and was mercilessly used by the borrower. She rose at dawn, worked as the regular household drudge till within an hour of school time, then walked into Rod Church for the day's schooling with a piece of dry bread in her pocket as dinner and on her return from school worked again till late at night. She admitted that she felt always hungry, always tired, always miserable, that she suffered from cold at night in her wretched little bed, and that Mrs. Neath often beat her. She was a bright, intelligent child, black-haired, olive-complexioned, with lively blue eyes which expressed at once the natural trustfulness of youth, a certain boldness and wildness derived from gypsy ancestors, and a questioning wonder that this pleasant-looking world should be systematically ill-treating her. The horrid lying, carneying old woman of the cottage received home truth instead of tea and sugar from Mavis Dale, who, with all her maternal feelings aroused, rushed off straight away to hunt for the neglectful father. She found him at the Baradine Arms and demanded his permission to take away the child. Veal, although sadly bemused, at once said that he could refuse nothing to the wife of his preserver. "'Oh, Laura Mussy, yes, mum, you may have my little Nora, and do what you like with her. Bless her heart, I took our Nora and her brothers to be the comfort o' my old age, but I won't stand in their light to interfere with what's best for any of them.' Mavis then took Nora straight home with her vine pits, bathed her, fed her, clothed her, and made much of her and Nora proved grateful, docile, amenable, doing all that Mrs. Dale told her to do, and from the first exhibiting an almost superstitious worship of Mr. Dale. For truly, as he himself had surmised, her little starved breast was overflowing with gratitude to the man who had saved her father. It mattered nothing to the children of the mud that their father was not an exemplary character. They did not want him to be drowned, and Nora, hearing an extreme youth of the hero who had interposed between him and such a cruel death, had mentally built a pedestal for the hero, and kept him on top of it ever since. It happened that about the time Dale was preparing to pay off the last installment of his debt, Mr. Bates unexpectedly applied for the money. He had never before shown the least anxiety for repayment. It had always been, take your time, William, I know I'm in safe hands, and so forth. But now he said, if you can make it convenient to you, William, it would be convenient to me. Oh, certainly, Mr. Bates. You shall have it before the end of the week, and I hope you're going to act on the advice I ventured to offer last time. That is, put it in one of these Canadian government guaranteed stocks. I'm sure it was good advice, William, even if I didn't act on it. Of course, my original advice was what you ought to have acted on, Mr. Bates, that is to say, bought an annuity with your entire capital. Ah, William, I really couldn't do that. And Mr. Bates turned away his eyes, as if unable to support Dale's friendly regard. Apart from these annuities for old folk being rather a dog-in-the-manger trip, I, well, one has one's private difficulties, William. One is not always a free agent. The demand for repayment, and with something of evasiveness or reticence in the old fellow's manner, greatly troubled Dale, not at all from selfish motives, but because it confirmed a suspicion that he had long entertained. Although invisible locally, disgraced in hiding somewhere at a distance, that blackguardly son was probably still draining the good old man's resources. So many things pointed to the correctness of this supposition. On the interest of the money that Mavis and Dale had together paid him for the business, he should have been able to live very comfortably whereas in fact his way of life was mean and sorry his cottage was quite a decent dwelling separated from the road by a nice long strip of garden and with a miniature apple orchard behind it but it showed all those signs of neglect that had been evident at vine pits when the dales first came there he had no proper servant but just pigged it anyhow with the occasional assistance of a woman and her husband his clothes though neatly brushed were too shabby and overworn for a person of his position and he was not a miser he was a proud self-respecting man who naturally would desire to maintain conventionally adequate state were he able to do so these thoughts worried dale he really loved mr bates thoroughly appreciated the great dignity and sweetness of his nature and felt it to be a monstrous and intolerable thing that the dear old chap at the age of seventy-three instead of being allowed to end his days in happy, seemly style, should be as if were bled to death by a conscienceless reprobate. But what could he do? It was like the cruelties of the woods that one regrets but cannot prevent. The rabbits chased by the weasels, the pheasants killed by the foxes, the thrushes destroyed by the hawks. Any doubt that remained in the mind of Dale was soon dissipated. He told Mavis how he had seen Bates, Jr., a seedy, wicked-looking wretch now, lurking at dust in the cottage porch, and how next morning he had ridden over to talk to Mr. Bates about this ill-omened visitor. Mr. Bates said it was true that his son had been there for two or three days, but he was gone now, and he declined to discuss the matter any further. I can't speak of it, William. I thank you for meaning kindness, but it's a thing I can't speak of dale also told mrs goody that richard bates had shown himself in the neighborhood and asked her if the fact was generally known he was aware that mrs goody had almost as much regard for the old man as he had himself no sir said mrs goody i haven't heard of it then that proves how close he kept no doubt he came and went as surreptitiously as he could let it be between ourselves mrs goody don't spread the tale an inch beyond us three "'I will not, sir, but oh well-a-day. It's a bad bit of news, sir. I did hope Mr. Bates was cured of that runnin' sore. She had been summoned from the kitchen just before leaving for the night, and with her shawl over her head, her wrinkled face working, and her bony hands clasped, she stood near the table and waited for Mr. Dale to give the signal for her to withdraw. "'If you should see him at any time, let me know, Mrs. Goody.' "'I will, sir.' i might perhaps do good if i could get a hold of him on the quiet and address a few words to him i wish it'd break his neck for him yes i do indeed i do i could tell you things as to make any one say hangin' was too good for him and encouraged to talk freely mrs goody told mavis and dale what indeed she had often told them before of the shocking badness of richard bates and the ugly scenes that had taken place in this very house of how he bullied his father to give him money storming and raving like a lunatic when resisted and of how the old fellow alone by himself had groaned and wept and prayed mrs Goody had heard him after a most dreadful quarrel praying out loud in his room upstairs and believe me sir he was a praying for a son all the time imploring of the lord to soften his heart like and save him from the hell-fire that his conduct asked for You know, sir, he's a very God-fearing man, Mr. Bates. End of chapter sixteen. Recording by Tom Wace, tom's audiobooks.com.